The best way I've heard it explained is actually by our president when she was asked the question, uh, "Why are you afraid of war?" And she said, "No, and we're not. I mean, you go to Estonia, nobody's afraid of war." Um, but she made the comparison with the earthquakes in Japan. And I think you could possibly make it here because apparently this too is a relatively risky. <laughs> so, are you afraid of an earthquake? Now, most people would say, "No, no, I'm not." Um, Or she uses the Japan example. She says well, Japan gets earthquakes every now and then. So what the Japanese people do is they prepare. They make sure their buildings are constructed in a way that make them safe. They make sure that they, if if the worst were to happen, that they would be able to survive for a few days without maybe electricity, whatnot. But they're not afraid of the earthquake. Now we don't in Estonia. We don't get earthquakes. We have no understanding of what it even means. We don't get forest fires that would threaten people's lives. We do, but they're usually minor and local. We don't get hurricanes or typhoons or tornadoes or any of that. What do we get <laughs> is a uh, is a neighbor that sometimes visits neighbors. Uh, are we afraid of that? No, we're not afraid of that. Um, we, we we prepare for that, and it's it's a um, that's what it is. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Jonathan Vesevyov is the current ambassador of Estonia to the United States. He has served Estonia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Defense since 2005, and he has played a leading role in shaping Estonia's national defense policy over the past decade. Ambassador Vesevyov visited the University of Washington in November 2018 and explained Estonia's national defense policies to the Estonian language class. The roots of Estonian security policy go back to 1939-1940 and the difficult choices that our leaders had to make uh, in those dark days. In 1939, August 23rd of 1939, the Nazis and the communists sign a treaty and become allies. The, the famous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which uh, in its secret protocols also divides up Eastern Europe. So half of Poland is to go to the Nazis, the other half to the Soviets, uh, all of the Baltic states and Finland to the Soviets. That was August 23rd, 1939. It was a secret, uh, but it was widely rumored that there was something in the uh, Nazi-Soviet pact that was not made public. But in general, it was a major shock in European security. Because, of course, those two ideologies, they uh, mainly attacked each other. So people assumed that they would be natural enemies, the communists and the Nazis. And all of a sudden, they become allies. And we find ourselves to be alone between uh, two major empires. According to the um, agreement, the Soviets then uh, proceeded and presented us with an ultimatum. Not only us, but also the Finns, the Latvians, and the Lithuanians. The ultimatum was to sign a treaty of friendship and peace or something like that. 
came as a huge surprise. According to the treaty, we were supposed to allow in, let in Soviet bases into Estonia. Our foreign minister went to Moscow. He thought he was going to Moscow to negotiate some kind of an agriculture deal. And then uh, he was met by the Soviet foreign minister Molotov himself, and actually Stalin showed up at the meeting. And they said that, well, we need to go beyond the agriculture deal. We need a, a European security is changing. We need, a, uh, we need to secure the Soviet Union. We can't secure the Soviet Union if you are overtaken by a hostile power. So we need our bases in your country. And if you don't let them in, you know, we'll, we'll invade you. They promised not to change the Estonian constitutional order. They promised not to overtake Estonia, but it was known from the moment the foreign minister got back to Tallinn that um, when we signed, bad things would happen. Now, they ended up signing it anyways. It's difficult to say what exactly took place in their heads, but I've read a number of memoirs and, and original documents from the meetings, and it seems that the, that the argument in their head was that if we end up fighting the Soviets, uh, we'll lose. I mean, we have no choice. There, there are no allies. Uh, there's nobody. We're a small state. We may withstand the Soviet onslaught for a few weeks, maybe two weeks, but eventually it's going to be bad. So fighting is not good. And then they thought that um, they saw the security situation in Europe uh, evolving, and they thought that well, war is about to come. Major war is about to come. Poland had been overtaken already. The Brits and the French had declared war. It was likely that the Germans and the Soviets would end up fighting each other. So they thought that perhaps the clouds would somehow go away, that major developments would take place. And by sitting very, very quietly in our very, very quiet corner of the world, after all is said and done, once the dust settles, perhaps it's going to be okay. So they decided to buy time, signed the treaty, Soviets came in, uh, disarmed the Estonian military, which actually didn't fire a single organized shot at the Soviets. They did fire, I mean, a few shots were fired here and there, but it was not organized in any way. They disarmed the Estonian Voluntary Defense League, which is a National Guard type of an organization. They organized uh, what was left of the Estonian army into, the, uh, into a, a unit of the Soviet military, called it up for exercises in Russia, and the first thing they shot all the officers top-level officers. Junior ones were, were spared. Uh, they took over the country in June of 1940. Uh, it ended up with major deportations, uh, an illegal uh, draft of Estonian young men into the Red Army, who had not been members of the Estonian Army yet, and uh, killed the national elite, the business elite, political elite, cultural elite, you name it. So when you walk around in Tallinn today, you look at the government building, the Stenbock House, there is a commemorative uh, plaque on the wall which has the names of the prime ministers and, and other cabinet ministers. But the most important thing is the, the prime ministers we had between uh, the two world wars uh, on it. And I always take visitors there and to point out the, the numbers, the, the dates. So they were all born at different times, of course. But they all, most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, happened, happened to die in 1940-1941. Not of natural causes. And then I point out to visitors that that's not the list of prime ministers who died during the repressions. That's the list of prime ministers. They all, well, overwhelming majority of them, a few managed to escape to Sweden and ended up in, in the West, but the overwhelming majority of them died in, the, uh, in 1940, 1941, in one year. 
Then obviously in 1941, uh, the Germans do attack the Soviets. Uh, they reach Estonia relatively fast. And what happens is that the Germans, once they take over Estonian territory, they um, start drafting Estonian young men into the uh, German uh, armed forces and organize them into Waffen-SS, which is what they did with every nation in, uh, in the countries that they had overtaken. They didn't trust the people enough to bring them into the Wehrmacht, so they organized them into Waffen-SS units. So if you were an Estonian man, 18 years old in 1941, you were drafted into the Red Army. Your younger brother uh, was 16 then, but 18 by the time the Germans had arrived, you were drafted into the German army. It was not unheard of for a Estonian brother to fight brother. In 1944, the Germans lose the war uh, in our part uh, of Europe, then the Soviets return, and uh, we end up with 50 years of uh, the Soviet occupation. So, the lesson, not fighting was not the safer option. We ended up fighting the war, not in our own uniform, losing roughly a third of the population because of the war, the deportations, the number of people who escaped. Uh, we ended up fighting the war not in our uniform, we fought in the uniforms of inhumane regimes that committed unspeakable crimes, both on our territory as well as others. But ended up fighting anyways. The Finns decided to, to fight, made huge sacrifices, lost a huge percentage of their territory. But they fought in their uniform. Many Estonians escaped Estonia. They didn't want to join the Germans or the Russians and fought in Finnish uniforms, because we had no choice of fighting in our own uniforms. So lesson number one that has guided our defense policy, security policy from 1991 on, is that not fighting is not the safer option. We will not go quietly again. We tried that, it didn't work out well. You cannot sit around quietly and hope for things to turn out well, they will not. So from 1991 on, we remember we still had Russian troops in Estonia. The defense budget was zero. There was a moment when we actually had an army of one, you know, the big slogan of the United States Army, but that did not mean what it means here. It was actually an army of one, the first person to join the Estonian army. We didn't have money. I'll tell you a funny story. The first constitutionally or freely, absolutely freely elected Estonian government comes into power in 1992. And the defense minister is an Estonian Swede who comes from Sweden. So he's... He's used to the Western style of doing things. So he walks into the minister's office, and it looks nasty and ugly in Soviet style. And, and so he says that, you know, I want people to fix the office. And they tell him, no, no sir, we, we, can't, we can't, can't do that. I said, what do you mean? You, you must misunderstand. I'm the minister. I'm telling you to fix the, get new furniture and fix it up. And they said, no, no, Mr. Minister, you must misunderstand. When we said we can't do it, we didn't mean that we don't have funds for that project or whatnot. I mean, we don't have any funds whatsoever. We don't have a budget. Can't do anything. So he goes back to Sweden where he was remodeling his apartment. And he takes his old couch from his living room and two armchairs and brings those over to the minister's office. And they serve us well until the early 2000s, by which time they were thrown out of the minister's office. We found them. They were uh, sitting in a warehouse somewhere. We brought them out. Uh, they're now in the Ministry of Defense. Uh, when all the dignitaries walk in, they walk right past these ugly brown couches, and we put up a sign saying, telling the story. This is where we started in 1991. No one would sell us arms. The Western nations didn't sell us arms because they were afraid that we might go insane and start shooting at the Russians and start World War III or whatnot. Uh, the Russians obviously didn't sell us arms. Nobody sold us arms. Even with the minor funds that we did have, we couldn't buy anything. So we didn't have anything. 
and yet we organized defense. Eventually it was 1994 and the Israelis that decided to sell us arms. And we're only now getting rid of the rifles, for instance, that we bought from the Israelis, the Gadils. We're the only nation to join the United States in the war in Iraq using Galils, Israeli-made rifles. You can imagine the, the surprise in the Arab world that, that created. So, not fighting is not the safer option. The second lesson from 1939-1940 is that we ought never to be alone again. No matter what, never alone again. We can't afford to be alone again. So from 1991 on, the goal has always been integrate ourselves to the West, or rather reintegrate ourselves to the West. And once in the major organizations of the West, NATO, the European Union, the OECD, uh, the Eurozone, the Schengen area, by 2012, I think we had become the most integrated nation, not only in Northern Europe, but all of Europe, had nothing to do with economic desires, nothing to do with cultural desires, it was a security policy-driven uh, process. Once in all of the clubs, the goal has been make sure that the clubs are as strong as, as possible, make sure the West is as coherent, as strong as possible. Now. Today, obviously, when we look at the European Union under stress, when we look at right now one uh, member state leaving with Brexit, and this obviously creates a number of question marks and concerns for us. If our security, at least partially, is dependent upon the stability of the West and Western institutions, then the fact that these institutions are under stress is not good. It's not to say that we're anti-reform. It's not to say that we're anti-public you know, unhappiness with some aspects of the European Union. We understand all of that. But the fact that the Western order seems to be under stress is not good. And the reason why it's not good, especially for us, is not because we think that liberal democracy will somehow fall. We don't think that. We think liberal democracy has had crises before. It's always come out of these crises stronger than it went into them. Because we're flexible. If we don't like the policies, we'll kick out the president. We'll kick out the prime minister. We'll get a new one. We're happy, unhappy with her. We'll kick her out, get a new one. That's not going to be a problem. The problem is that during turbulent times, the boat's not going to sink. But we're not the big guy sitting in the middle of the boat. We're the small guy who sits on the very edge of the boat. So during turbulent times, the, it, we're getting wet. That's for sure. But it's quite plausible that we might fall overboard. So the boat's going to be fine. We're not the captain. We're the little guy. By that I mean that we live in a in a region where stability can turn into instability momentarily because of Russia and the capabilities that Russia has and the size of Russia, the policies of Russia that have been unpredictable to say the, the least. So what should we do? First, what we do is we spend heavily on defense. We're at or above 2% of GDP defense spending before that became a, a popular thing to do, before President Trump was elected, and our continue, continue to increase. Uh, we um, work hard on making sure that NATO does what it's supposed to do, that its defensive and offensive capabilities are up to the task, that, it's, that the deterrence posture that it creates is credible. Because of that, we have brought allied troops into Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Poland to make sure that everybody understands that there is no such thing as keeping a conflict in the Baltics below Article 5 threshold. That's always been the concern. Oh, is somebody going to really sacrifice New York uh, for Narva or Tallinn or whatnot? Well, we're, we're trying to argue with that point by demonstrating that no, 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 the allies are already there. And once you come, cross the border, we'll shoot at you. 
and you'll have to shoot back if you want to survive. And once you shoot back, you cannot be certain whether the person getting hit in those bushes or behind that hill, whether that person is an Estonian sergeant or a British private or a French lieutenant, or hopefully increasing as we get a more American presence, an American soldier. And the point is not to fight the war. That would devastate us, and we're sure the rest of Europe. The point is to convince the other side that the defense of the West, not just of Estonia, but the defense of the West really does start on Nadvar River, and that he ought not to cross that line if he doesn't want to create a catastrophe beyond what human mind can contemplate. Uh, we've been relatively successful up until today. The fight continues. Security is not a box that you take and then take care of and then uh, go on to other, other stuff. Can't take our eye off the ball. Uh, allied presence has been established, but we need to continue working on making sure that NATO can actually move uh, when called upon, making sure that um, we have reinforcements in place for our region as well as others. And I'm glad to know that NATO has now not only as an organization, but NATO member states, including the United States, have over the past few years started taking the, the very serious challenge that, the, that Russia poses uh, seriously. Once we start taking something seriously, people should start taking us seriously. I always love it when people ask me uh, what keeps me awake at night. I always like to answer with what I think was the best answer I've ever heard was when the, Secretary, the current Secretary of Defense of the United States, Jim Mattis, got that question. He looked at the person asking the question, he said, nothing keeps me awake at night. I keep other people awake at night. <laughs> that's what we do in NATO, and that's what all the people who want to challenge the free world should feel. But we need to make sure that's the case. It doesn't happen automatically. We need to make sure that's the case. Even today in 2019, Former Soviet-occupied states like Estonia have good reason to guard against their Russian neighbor. In 2008, Russia annexed parts of Georgia, and then in 2014, Russia annexed parts of Ukraine. Other destabilizing events in former Soviet-occupied states have been linked either directly or indirectly to the Kremlin. For Estonia, the largest of these was a series of cyber attacks directed at Estonian digital infrastructure in 2007. The attacks capitalized on a decision by the Estonian government to move a Soviet war memorial in Estonia's capital, Tallinn, to a military cemetery within the city. The monument, known best as the Bronze Soldier, was erected by the Soviets in 1947 to commemorate their liberation of Estonia from the Nazis. But the statue today is a reminder to many Estonians not of the end of Nazi occupation, but of the start of Soviet occupation. The decision to move the bronze soldier was followed almost immediately by an onslaught of cyber attacks. The attacks targeted media outlets, publishing false reports that claimed that the government was not only destroying the bronze soldier, but also desecrating Soviet graves. Members of Estonia's Russian community, which compromises about one quarter of the population, took to the streets in protest. The cyber attacks continued, disabling government communications, banks, and even ATMs. The protests led to the worst rioting and looting in Estonia's history, which lasted over two days and left 156 people injured and one dead. When order was restored, over 1,000 protesters had been detained. 
These cyber attacks, combined with the Russian annexations of Georgia and Ukraine, have led Estonians to revamp their national security policies. Jonathan Vesevyov was one of the principal authors of the new policies enacted in 2009, 2010, and 2012. One such policy is an increase in snap mobilization exercises that test the country's readiness in case of an invasion. It's legally now possible in Estonia to make governmental decisions without having to physically convene. So the government makes the decision, then this message goes out to the military, and what the military does is it basically informs two groups of people. It informs the unit and the professionals in the unit so that they would start getting stuff ready physically. And then the message, uh, messages go out to the reservists. And they get the message uh, through online means. They receive emails. Uh, we use social media. They receive text messages. And we also publicize it through uh, radio and TV and, and whatnot. The first time we conducted a SNAP exercise, we gave the reservists, I think, 48 hours to show up. Uh, last two times, we've given them zero hours. The order goes out, come immediately, because we want to see how fast they would actually show up, who gets the message, who doesn't get the message, what kind of problems we, we run into. Uh, and there are all sorts of problems we run into. There are people who are on a, on a, on a trip to Australia that contact us and tell us that, I mean, sorry, do I have to come? Well, legally, yes, but then we give them usually exemptions. There was a case, uh, not again last time, but the time before, where uh, the unit uh, that made the call, the first person to show up, it was in Jochvi, which is in northeastern Estonia, the unit. The first person shows up like 30, 40 minutes after the message goes out, and he has two plastic bags with him. And you're not supposed to bring anything except for personal stuff, but two, you know, full plastic bags. And we're like, you know, what's in the bag? It's, it's groceries. I'm like, no, no, you, you can't bring groceries. Well, it turns out he was shopping, doing his shopping. When he received the message, didn't have time to pay attention to whether it was a test, an exercise, or war. And he just showed up. He didn't go anywhere, he showed up. I said, no, 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 it's okay, go take the groceries home, come back, you have a few hours. Uh, we have cases where people have shown up and with tickets in their hand saying that my flight is leaving in a few hours. I'm like, well, we don't, we don't care. And they said, well, I got married yesterday and I'm going on a honeymoon to Bali or whatnot. And I have tickets here. Do I cancel or what do I do? And then we said, okay, go to your honeymoon. We're, we're happy with the fact that you showed up. We know how to reach you. It's not war. It was an exercise. You passed. And then we have cases where people just don't show up. And, um, and these people are basically in two categories. There are people who never receive the message. And we're working very hard to make sure that everybody receives the message. And it's getting easier today with all the contemporary means of communications. Uh, but still, there are people who simply aren't, are, are turned off that particular day. So we're thinking of ways how to reach them. And there are people who do receive the message but uh, uh, pretend like they did not because they don't want to show up. They have, they have to go to school. They have to go to work. They don't want to go all of a sudden on a Wednesday afternoon, for instance, or a Thursday morning and ruin their weekend. And these people we will find and we will prosecute and we will make sure that they feel the pain because that is not an option in Estonia. It is a tax, if you will. And just because you don't want to pay the tax because you have better ideas what to do with your, with your money, right, it's not okay. The other people show up, and what we ask our reservists to do, 
is not only, and this is constitutional, it's not just some you know, minor thing. We don't just ask them to give us their nine months of, or 11 months of their life for, uh, for conscription. We ask them to be able to, to, to show up um, no matter what time it is and to fight against overwhelming odds uh, for the security of Estonia. Now, the only argument that we have on our side is that it doesn't matter who's against you when you know who's next to you, right? So it's, it's everybody's task, shoulder to shoulder, we're an army of one. That argument is only valid for as wrong as it is true. Uh, if it becomes apparent that I'm the only guy from my office that showed up, not because of medical exemptions, which exist, because the other person simply didn't answer the email. If it becomes apparent that I'm the only guy from my class that showed up for the exercise, in time of war, I'll think twice. Because I don't, you know, why should I, you know, why should I do this when everybody else is not doing it? Why should I pay the taxes if it's perfectly okay to not pay the taxes? Why should I not cross the street on a red light when everybody else is doing that? Can't have that. Um, if we don't like the system, we should change the system. But if this is the system, then the government's task is to make sure it's no laughing uh, matter. A good number of our reservists work in Finland every day. We expect them to show up. And if they don't show up, we'll make sure they feel the pain. And uh, the flip side of the coin is that the people who do show up, thinking very hard about ways to sort of highlight that. Um, in the past few years, we've made a conscious effort to highlight the role our veterans play. And uh, veterans of foreign wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, we have, uh, on a per capita, per capita basis, we lost more soldiers than most um, who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we have more than 100 who lost limbs, uh, got seriously wounded, and then even more than that, uh, who um, have mental uh, traumas from the, from the conflicts. Over the past few years, we've made sure that every Estonian knows the role of veterans play in our security policy. We're now thinking of ways to highlight not veterans who fought in foreign wars, but also the people who decide to show up on a Wednesday morning with their groceries, uh, leave their job. They don't get paid, by the way, uh, during the days they're, they're doing that service. So it's not easy for the individuals, and neither is it easy to pay our taxes every single year. Um, and yet we all do it. Because if we don't, I mean, no neighbor of ours would want to talk to us if it became apparent that we're the ones who were somehow cheap. So that's what we're trying to do with the SNAP exercises. We have been doing, conducting them twice a year, um, bigger and bigger. I would expect them to come more often in the future. And we will only be happy when they are so routine that people don't even notice it, that it never makes news, that it's just an everyday thing that we do. When we have foreign generals visit, they listen to our officers uh, talk about the reserve army model and the conscription system. And they look at our warehouses and the way we have organized ourselves uh, in the physical domain to make sure that we can mobilize fast and move out of the, the bases. They all have this look on their face which says that, yeah, I, I hear you, but I don't really understand or believe that this is doable because most of our allies have a professional military system. So you can only imagine the shock, the positive shock uh, in their 
faces when they actually show up for these exercises. And we make the call. And the next, you know, in, in the next hours, we have hundreds and hundreds of construction workers and plumbers and lawyers and doctors and unemployed people and truck drivers and members of parliament and government officials show up, dress in fatigues, take their rifles and go out in the woods and form a battalion in a few hours. And then they're all, oh my God, it actually works. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbø. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider learning a Baltic language. The University of Washington is the only university in the country to offer courses in all three Baltic languages, Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. Ambassador Vesevyev stuck around after the bell to answer students' questions, so we're sticking around to share one of his answers. The question was about the effects of social media on Estonia's democracy. We are a democracy. We have elections coming up next um, March. Hotly contested, as always, uh, with our elections. It always feels that everything is, is, is going to be dependent upon the next uh, election. Being is quite similar to the feeling people have here. Um, very hotly contested. The election campaign is only now beginning, so uh, the active phase of Estonian campaigning will probably be January, February time frame. The election's always on the first Sunday of March, every fourth year. And um, we'll see. The um, question probably alludes to the fact that the Russians have attempted to influence um, not only, not necessarily the election results, but influence the societies uh, in the West by spreading false rumors and making, uh, trying to make the divisions that are natural in our societies bigger, heat up the internal rhetorics and so on and so forth. We have gotten used to these sorts of things over the past 20 plus years. The good thing with uh, constant propaganda that is directed at you is that you do become immune. It's like a vaccine that in your organism uh, forces your organism to create antibodies. And we have uh, lived through 50 years of outrageous propaganda 
that uh, was all-encompassing, all in, in every aspect of your life. From young childhood and in kindergarten, you were told about how Lenin was the person who made everything possible uh, up until the very late 1980s. Weren't we just discussing that yesterday? I remember my wife uh, told a group of other uh, spouse, ambassadorial spouses, they asked about what was life like in the Soviet Union. It's very difficult to explain that to people who have no experience of not living in a, or, or of living in a not free society. Um, but it's, you know, three-year-olds coming home crying because Lenin is dead. And he, uh, he was such a great, you know, leader, no longer is he with us to guide us through our daily lives. That, you know, how, that's how deep propaganda is. And it works on three-year-olds. I mean, for the day, and then the parents explain, <laughs> and then the next morning. But it's difficult for a three-year-old to understand it. But by the time a three-year-old is 18 years old, he or she is immune if he has any brain whatsoever, most people do, then he, he or she becomes immune to the propaganda that is thrown at you through television or newspapers or, uh, you know, your boss lecturing you. Oftentimes the boss doesn't believe what he has to lecture you on. And now it is also the internet. So I think as free societies, the more used we get um, to these um, activities, the more immune we are. We in Estonia, we think, are pretty immune because of the 50 years and now the 20 years of Russian propaganda that has been directed against us. I do think that we as, 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 as democracies have a hard time adjusting to technological development in general. Democracy as we know it, one man, one vote, became possible once the printing press was invented. And we found out a way, or uh, created a way to disseminate news to people who live far away and who could then make up their minds about what was going on and decide on who was in power and who was not. That was not possible before we could disseminate news to people in faraway places. The, the age of the printing press is only now coming to an end. It didn't come to an end with the invention of the radio, it didn't come to an end with the invention of the TV. You were still dependent upon the, the anchor explaining what had happened to you. And you had a choice. If you didn't like ABC, you could watch NBC. But it wasn't possible for you to come to a conclusion by talking only to the people who share your viewpoints. To come to the conclusion that everybody thinks exactly the way I do. And then when the outcome of the election, for instance, is different, to believe that oh, some sort of a conspiracy must be at play. Because it is so such a no-brainer that we ought to do X. Because everybody says we've got to do X. Why is it the government is doing Y? Must be confess, must be the elites, must be you know the swamp, uh, whatnot that's that's affecting it. Social media and the twenty-four hour news cycle, but but more more so social media is changing the the way we get information and changing it in more fundamental ways than TV or radio. Um, ever did and we just need to learn how to deal with it I think the the solution long-term solution is education if people are educated and I don't mean just higher education I think it's more importantly has, has not to do deal with higher education it has to do with primary education high school education early childhood education where people learn to think critically and critically not only in general but also critically with regards to the sources of information. If we fail to bring everybody along on that path, 
and we're in a we're gonna we're gonna head turbulent uh, times. If we succeed, then I think we'll be fine because people will adapt or they will learn, and that's why we in Estonia are so proud of the fact that our education system is egalitarian. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, where you live. The early childhood education you get is is level. It, 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 if you're in downtown Tallinn or in a faraway countryside place, it's more or less level. Uh, the same is true for primary and, and high school education. And I think that's important because without that, you are creating pockets in your society who feel no hope, uh, who feel trapped, and who don't believe that they too have a chance to succeed. And you couple that with social media with an ability to disseminate false news as fast as uh, we have the ability to disseminate the true news and um, the one man one vote construct might start pulling apart so i think education is key